Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, Executive Director of Mitchell Institute. Here on Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. If you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. Consider our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you hear, please do us a favor and follow our show and give us a like and leave a comment so we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Now, we've spent the last several months focusing a lot on next generation UAVs. And the reason is simple. The Air Force is emphasizing this technology to bring mass and capability back to the air power equation. And to be clear, this has to work because the current aircraft inventory is simply too small and too old to meet the threats that we see around the globe. And we need a way to boost the air power available for combatant commanders around the globe. Think about it. We've got China pushing hard in the Pacific, Russia at war in Ukraine, Iran and North Korea are still pressing to grow their nuclear capabilities, and the Middle East isn't exactly stable. And the Homeland Defense mission, it just can't be ignored. So these challenges, they all require air power, but we don't have enough jets to meet demand. Now, of course, types like the F-35, F-22, B-21, and others, they're crucial. But the Air Force is looking to augment them with unmanned partners that hopefully cost less to produce, not demand as much on the human capital side, and still deliver serious capability. If you think about it, we've already seen the first episode of this movie over the past two decades with remotely piloted aircraft like Predator and Reaper expanding the sensor shooter capacity for commanders around the world. And what we're looking at now is far more sophisticated. Mitchell is a big believer in this approach, and it's why we regularly try to help narrate this journey by speaking to the experts who are making it happen. And that's what we're going to do today. We've got Mike Atwood with us here. He's a senior director for advanced programs at General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. He's spent most of his professional career in this field, so it's important to understand he's not a guy who's new to this conversation. He's lived in this space for years, and he's helped get to where we are today with UAVs. He's also got to see the table figuring out what's next with Future Vector. So with that, Mike, awesome to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always excited to talk about the future of uh, unmanned warfighting and the contributions that General Atomics is making. No, that's great, man. So you've got one of the coolest jobs. You're literally helping chart the Future Vector for a significant portion of tomorrow's combat air power. And I think people are curious about your background. How do you get your start in this zone? Yeah, I think like most young kids, you watch something like Top Gun and you get excited to be a fighter pilot. And then you realize the journey it takes to go into the Navy and the Air Force. And I took a vector to get involved in aerospace engineering. You know, very young age, robotics was a big deal with the first robotics competition. And that just set me on a trajectory of kind of the triple major of computer software, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, which gave birth to this whole UAV career. Over about 20 years, I was fortunate to work on the MQ-1 Predator, the MQ-9 Reaper, the MQ-20 Avenger, and now find myself running research and design at a world-class aerospace company at General Atomics. Very exciting time to, to be in my seat. There's a lot of change in how we're approaching warfighting, the inclusion of AI and machine learning. And so that, that core background that I have has enabled me to harness the power of kind of a digital revolution uh, to really bring some pervasive warfighting concepts forward. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And you're a private pilot too, right? I am, yeah. Uh, along that journey, I still wanted to fly airplanes. And when I was in college at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I got my pilot's license. And that was a great place in Central California to fly around and 
flight to Napa and Tahoe and Santa Barbara. And that gave me a deeper appreciation for, I think, some of the bigger challenges we face in aerospace with flight critical hardware components, airspace integration, some of the less talked about issues with the UAVs. And so I have a personal integration into airspace and that helps me make better decisions when we look at unmanned integrating in and around manned aircraft. I mean, I think that's so important to me. I grew up with aviation too, and I'm very active with it today. And there are those that do it like you do, and there are those that don't stuck study academically. And I think the practitioner element is really important. So that's great to hear. So yeah. I want to help people understand the current UV conversation. It didn't magically appear out of nowhere. It reflects decades of work by folks like yourself who helped pioneer earlier generations of UAVs. And General Atomics is probably the most iconic industry player in the field, the Predator and Reaper that recognized around the world. And so and you mentioned it earlier, but you grew up around these aircraft in your time at GA. So can you help us understand this journey from a technical perspective? UAVs have been sitting on Air Force ramps for years now, but the versions we have today are way different than what existed in the early 2000s. How do you explain this evolution to folks on the outside? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. GA being a privately held company, we've been able to align ourselves with the warfighter need a little bit more directly than the Lockheeds and Boeings that are chasing the large acquisition programs. And so part of that journey had us focus on the intelligence customers. And that sent us down a path in our early 1990s pedigree of what I'd call information dominance. Not necessarily putting warheads on foreheads, but understanding and mapping a complex battle space before the warheads came. Then 9-11 happened, and that, that intelligence knowledge started getting coupled with actual war fighting. And you saw the emergence of air-to-ground, weaponized, unmanned air systems in the central CENTCOM or Middle Eastern theater. And that began, began the first investment with Air Combat Command and how we could really use UAVs at scale. What makes that era very different than what we're going in now, it was largely air to ground and it was largely a permissive environment. So we were able to slowly on-ramp technologies in somewhat of an engineering safe haven in the combat deployments. As things moved around in the battle space and edges of the battle space expanded into places like Syria and Pakistan and the fringes of those, you started to see material systems emerge like the Beast of Kandahar and the RQ-170. And there was an obvious indicator that contested environments were going to come. Those systems were not needed at scale. They were able to do very specific mission sets. And they largely hid in the shadows of the UAV programs that were out there with seeing videos always being Hellfire engagements from the MQ-9 and the MQ-1. As CENTCOM has died down a little bit, the counterinsurgency war and moving to Africa and then even Africa has died down a little bit, the Ukraine conflict and the emergent China conflict have really pivoted to a threat system that challenges the legacy UAVs. And so for the last eight years, there's been a shift in the tech and the shift in the tech has been to operate in these highly contested environments. China gets a huge amount of focus. You hear it from Secretary Kendall all the time. So now we define the highly contested and that is a peer level system that's at or above our technical capability today. And so a guy like me working on research and design is called in the action to have a much bigger imagination than I had in the first decade of my career. And so that helps draw the canvas by which we're painting these new air-to-air -air unmanned manned team platforms 
that are really aligned to the highly contested air-to-air battle vice the air-to-ground permissive battle. That's an awesome descriptor. I remember living through it and watching it, and now you nailed it. So was industry already anticipating this sort of transition? Obviously, there were programs like Skyborg, AFRL, and other efforts that were helping move the enterprise, or was this something that the industry was putting IRAD to on their own to move it, anticipating that the switch could come along at some point? How did that push-pull relationship work? Yeah, I think if you go way back in the time machine with the X45 program, the original UCAV that was out there that was made by Northrop and Boeing at the time, this idea of a contested air-to-air capability has been around for a long time, but I don't think the demand signal from China was as big as it is right now. And so there weren't government programs that were driving big budgets on it. So to your comment about IRAD, I think a lot of us chief technology officers saw that and started rebalancing our IRAD portfolios to focus on the technologies that would be needed within that, I'll call it unmanned combat air vehicle. And when I say that, I mean air to air. And so we have been spending a huge amount of IRAD on that. It wasn't until Will Roper, Secretary of the Air Force for Acquisition, came into play that he really started putting money behind the pursuit at a level that was significant, maybe to even dwarf a lot of our IRADs. That Skyborg was the anchor point. It was made a Vanguard program, which is the highest tier of risk-taking. Skyborg went very well for General Atomics and catapulted, I think, the awareness of what unmanned air-to-air could do to a level that we hadn't seen prior to 2020 calendar year. And I think that spark has ignited a wildfire of programs in and around unmanned air-to-air highly contested operation. I think that's come at the same time as tensions with Taiwan and the integration with the Australians have doubled down on the geopolitical attributes of that and the speed to ramp that we all feel, whether it's at the industry partners or at the government, is driving a whole new emphasis on including the technologies that we've been incubating to become real at the operational level. That's incredible. So walk me through where you see the state of play today. Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, has made it abundantly clear that he's all in on next generation UAVs. They tie into his operational imperatives in a lot of ways. So what's your take on this vision and where do you think the service is trying to go and why? You alluded to it with the threat and obviously China's a driver, but what are other factors we should consider here? It's been interesting to watch Frank Kendall come into office and take over the reins from Will Roper. Will Roper is a fabulous R&D big thinker coming from Strategic Capability Office and MIT before that. What's different about Secretary Kendall is he understands how the defense apparatus works from an acquisition standpoint. A little bit I think better because of his experience than Will did. And so what Kendall's done is mapped a robust acquisition strategy around the emergent technology. And that's enabled us in industry to really start putting rubber on ramp in ways that was more R&D in Will Roper's era. And then in addition, I think mission analysis and modeling has showed there's a huge amount of value in mass. So much of our department events has been focused on the bald eagles, on the F-22s, on the F-35s, on the B-21s. I think Secretary Kendall brings a unique perspective that mass has its own value in the fight. And so you take a lower cost, more commodity aircraft mapped to a highly contested environment with a secretary that understands the acquisition cycle. You take that with all the incubation of the IRAD 
And I think the Air Force really has a recipe for success right now. I, the biggest challenge that I see Secretary Kendall dealing with right now is the policy issues. If you have unmanned, weaponized air-to-air airplanes operating in a highly contested environment where they might be jammed and denied of communications, what authorities are we going to give warfighters to implement those mission systems? How is that methodology and tactics going to overlap with existing fighter tactics? And how do we find the right recipe of risk-taking to capability in the warfight? And it's not really like an engineering technical problem. It's more of a use of the product problem right now. And I think that's the phase that the Futures Group at Half A5 is working on in conjunction with Secretary Kendall. And I think that will drive what the average American sees on the ramp in that 2026-2027 timeframe of this operational system. No, I, I totally get that. And the Air Force often refers to this capability as affordable mass at the tactical edge. In, in your opinion, how do you take that? What does it mean? And how could this new technology help manifest that vision? You referred to the bald eagles, the main yeah. platforms we think about, F-22s, F-35s, B-21s. Why would this be different on the mass side? Yeah, so we understand the bald eagles, and I'll switch my analogy just for a bit to kind of a Zippo lighter. You use it all the time. You have it your whole life. Your kids inherit it. You know, that, that is our F-22. That is our B-2, our B-21. On the other end, even prior to Will Roper's era, there was a lot of experimentation with AFRL in low-cost attributable platform sharing. And I'll equate that to the match. It's this thing you use on demand when you need it, highly consumable, less than a thousand flight hours, and has a limited op tempo, but you can instantaneously bring mass. I think in the middle of those two is the Bic lighter. And I think largely we've determined that though the match has a key role in the early stages of conflict, it can't maintain the mass operational tempo that's needed in the fight. And so landing gear and runways and working from agile combat environments has been the Goldilocks point for the Air Force and where they've ended up. And I think that confluence of understanding the high end, understanding the low end, and then right-sizing it, doing a quick check with the technology and making sure it's realizable in the timescales that we want is the moment that we're living in. And I think it all fits together in a nice puzzle. And I think the emphasis right now is on the Goldilocks, that kind of it's just right for schedule, cost, and performance. How do the labs play into this? You mentioned Will Roper, efforts he initiated, obviously DARPA was very big. Your Gremlins program is tied to that. Has that really been helpful for helping actually build concepts and test them and really prove out ideas? Or how does that role fill with the lab? Yeah, the lab has basically poured the foundation that the house of this UCAV is being built on. If it wasn't for the efforts of Air Force Research Labs, Dr. Mike Gregg, people like Greg Addington, which are the founders of, of the research and design piece of it, we wouldn't be at a mature state to realize Secretary Kendall's timescales really at all. DARPA is interesting because they're DARPA hard. And I think DARPA always strives to make the disruptive capability. So while AFRL is more maturing what is needed right now and bringing sixth generation to reality at an affordable price point, DARPA is doing these leap ahead capabilities. And for us, DARPA has provided some amazing um, signals intelligence capability, like algorithms, some amazing sensor hardware and the miniaturization of IR sensing. They're really pioneering the deep learning and AI, the faster than real time, the quantum computing that we hope to get to some days. 
I think the DARPA programs will on-ramp with the kind of conversation that we've had so far in the farther out future and be even further leap ahead technology on top of that core aircraft we're going to see in 26. DARPA right now, one of the exciting programs that I can talk about is what's called Liberty Lifter, which is a wing and ground effect seaplane that does some very innovative flight controls on the sea and uses ground effects and can fly over islands. That's essential in agile combat employment. So you bring that disruptive basing through unmanned cargo aircraft that are sea skimming to then resupply this kind of amoeba forward basing concept that's harnessing UAVs that are built around unimproved fields and short runways and all these pieces start to play together. And so each of these organizations, whether they be SCO, DARPA, AFRL, even Army Research Labs is doing some pioneering work in the air launched effects. It's all fitting very nicely together. And for the first time in my career and my two decades doing it, I don't feel it's redundant and I feel it's very additive. Now, last time we talked, you were telling me a story about flight test and some of the exercises you've been involved with. And, and oftentimes it is thanks to the labs and all that. And you had a story about an inventor out at Edwards and yeah. it really helped change how you thought about the technology in ways that you might not have, if you just kept it in the academic realm. Could you share that with the audience? It was really helpful to me. Yeah, to kind of get my head around yeah I can. It actually was done on a GAI RAD test. So it's a little bit easier to talk about, but we have a MQ-20 jet powered UAV that we use to do general software development on. And it's based out of our Palmdale area. And we fly that and we do different software experiments. And we're now at a level where we're flying reinforced agents. And what that means is we basically go in in a training environment. I call it a dojo where we build a, a version of the physics where we basically tell the computer to try every possible permutation of how you could behave with aircraft roll and bank, how you control your sensors, how fast you go, how high you go. And it runs through every possible permutation of the state space and generates this thing called an agent. And you can think of that as a software program that tells the airplane what to do. Using an MQ-20 configured with a Starlink capability over the air, we add this agent to the airplane while it's up flying in and around Edwards. And the plane looks into the Edwards airspace and it looks at an F-35 or a F-16 from a test pilot school or a KC-135 taking off, just doing general operations. And it tries to reason its way through what it's seeing and how to behave and how to act. And again, this, this software has not been written by a human. It's been written by essentially a chat GPT equivalent kind of thing where it's not deterministic. We don't exactly know what it's going to do when we send it out there. And we were doing a demo for a senior Air Force leader, and we told it to tether to a target that was in the Edwards airspace that happened to be an F-16 that day. And lo and behold, a Southwest airliner going to San Bernardino Airport happened to find itself on an instrument approach procedure between us and the F-16. And while we're sitting there with this agent running, the plane turned and started following the Southwest airliner. And of course, our UAV is in a FAA mandated airspace in these geofence boundaries. There's no actual safety risk here. It's all separated to the FAA standards. But it turned at more than 50 nautical miles away to go follow the Southwest airliner. And I'm sitting here going, this is not good because I don't know what it's going to do. I don't know if it's going to turn left or right or continue to follow that Southwest airliner. And at some point I have to call a knock it off criteria where it's too far outside of our training environment where we're comfortable. And after about 15 seconds, it turns back and starts looking at the F-16 again. It had observed the behavior of the Southwest airliner and determined it was not a class of military target. But of course, what happened here is the training environment 
didn't include San Bernardino Airport, didn't include instrument approach plates, didn't include Southwest airliners. And we went, oh, we should probably put white targets, non-military targets in the simulation so the AI can discriminate and be smarter and not have that 30 seconds of pull away. That senior leader turned to me and looked at me and said, oh my gosh, I can see the future and I am not sure the US Air Force is ready for this future of non-determinism. And back to my comment about Secretary Kendall, I think that is the bigger, heavier conversation that the Pentagon is having. When we go to war, if we go to war, how are we gonna harness this capability, take the right amount of risk? And of course, in, in the case of going to war, it's gonna be flying with other blue aircraft. How do we make sure it behaves in a way that the other blue US Air Force aircraft are integrated properly with it. And so we are absolutely at the forefront of this technology. It is real, it is today, it is here. The question is, what do we wanna do about it and how are we gonna take risks to implement it? I really appreciate that. And obviously we're a nation that's come from the MQ-9, which is being flown remotely with humans very much in the loop. And obviously this AI future that you're speaking about is very different. Is there a model or some paradigm you use when you help explain it to folks that might not be deep on the engineering side of this. Obviously, there's the component that actually flies a jet. There's another set of AI that might work the sensors and all of that. But how do you look at this and, and help people get their head around it? Yeah, it's so tough. I think the term in the open environment and press about AI and ML is really convoluted. Artificial intelligence, when someone says that to me, what I hear is cognitive, that it does sense-making. Like a child, it reasons its way through its environmental stimulus. When we talk about machine learning, that's a different thing. That's where we give a machine data and it tries to figure out on a set of data what possible cognitive behaviors it can do. So much of what we've experienced in our personal lives is like with our phones, auto-tagging people, kind of guessing where we're going to go because our behavior on our maps application. That's what we call supervised or unsupervised learning. Basically, Google and Amazon are taking huge amounts of data and essentially generating patterns and relationships in that. We've toyed with supervised and unsupervised learning. That's like Project Mayhem doing full motion video patterning. But I found that to be incredibly limiting in what we were going to do. And so when I talk about machine learning, I'm talking about reinforcement learning, which is basically setting a set of rules without any data and then letting the machine, the AI, cognitively learn inside a set of rules, different ways it can solve the problem. So the AI ML that General Atomics works on is largely reinforcement learning, which requires no data, which is a great way to go when you're starting to work in the highly contested, where the US doesn't have a lot of data on how our adversary works in a highly contested environment of all these military systems that maybe we don't know about or can't easily have knowledge about to put in the training environments. So it's very different than what people experience with Amazon Alexa and Siri, because all that's supervised deep learning on large data sets. This new world of reinforcement learning is really changing the game. But again, that comes in the face of not being deterministic. We don't quite know what it's gonna do because we didn't train it on a data set. So I don't know if that helps, but it puts a construct around these ubiquitous terms of AI and ML. No, it's crazy helpful. So when we look at the future of the industry, you know, in the past you had your airframe builders and you had other subcomponents that were more physically industrial age based. 
When we look to what the future might hold, do you see a zone where you still have your airframe builders, but then AI is a different set of vendors and perhaps more plugs and plays in a more open mission systems fashion? So when better versions come on board, you can just upload those to the physical airframe and that still executes, but it has a better brain, so to speak, or how does that play out in the future? Yeah, I think the way you described it is the goal. I think the reality of implementing the goal is very hard because to the discussion of training and reinforcement learning, the reinforcement learning, the agent is intimately tied to the behavior of the physical entity, right? If you're a pro athlete, your AI is going to have a different set of responses to the world than if you're a toddler, just not learning how to walk. And so you can't completely divorce a software load of behavior from the physical instantiation of what it is. So what we try to do is we try to break down the physical into maybe an airplane, a set of communications, a set of sensing equipment, and we make agents that are good for electro-optical systems. We make good agents that are good for radar systems. We make agents that are good for barrel rolling, flight dynamics, UAVs. And we have smaller agents, but at some level, those agents have to be co-optimized to work together. And right now, it's only the lead system integrators that have the knowledge sets to take all the sub-agents, combine them in one bigger training environment, and then have the higher level behaviors that are the kind of more macro warfighting level come together. So I would love to see it if we could have a smaller company like Shield AI completely in a vacuum develop an agent for a UCAV aircraft that General Atomics might make, but it's somewhere in that development stack, in that DevSecOps, you're going to have to have the two to play together. And I think there's an LSI role where either the aircraft systems are given to the machine learning vendor or the machine learning vendor gives their submodels to the lead system integrator, but it's not as cut and dry as, as just segregating it all. And you use the term OMS, open mission systems. That's really holistically separate from AI ML. OMS is a way for things to plug and talk. Think of OMS as like the invention of Wi-Fi that I can go to my house, I can buy a toaster, an iPhone, a TV, and I don't know, my electric car that's in my garage, and they can all communicate and plug and talk. That's what OMS gives. That doesn't really give me the AI software that does that. So AI rides on the transport layer of the communications of OMS, but OMS and AI or AIML are very different things in themselves. It is really, really impressive how you're breaking this down. What we're looking at right now in many ways is a generational reshaping of the aerospace industry. GA was one of the first new entrants that scaled since the end of the Cold War in many ways. And now there are a lot of other players in the mix. And obviously there are different elements of the UAV industry. They're very small UAVs and, and then on up. How do you see this amount of activity and the new entrants and all just changing dynamics? And what are the pros and cons with it? It's been interesting. I'm involved in a couple missile programs. And one of the big lessons learned in missile programs is how do you make all the missiles you need to fight this giant mass war that we've been describing and, and an away war? And I think an idea emerged when we make kinetics that we need as many supply chains as we can possibly have that have resiliency to provide the level of mass. Because again, we're not making bald eagles anymore. We're making this kind of middle ground product 
that you're going to bring thousands of, not hundreds of. And so I think there's a, an acknowledgement across the industry and the government that there will have to be multiple suppliers. You're not going to see an MQ25 competition the way it was where Boeing won that as a single provider. You're going to see multiple providers come. So when that happens, you end up in this modularity discussion about how do you make multiple offerers, products, all integrate and work together and be somewhat on the same tech stack. What comes from that then is a skateboard genus concept, much like you see Tesla doing or Rivian doing, where they basically build one substructure, one skateboard, one propulsion drive unit, one vehicle management system, and they layer multiple adaptable products on top of that. So for Tesla, the Model X, the Model S, the Model Y, the Model 3 are all basically built on the same underlying skateboard technology. The difference in the Department of Defense is we're saying that the Model 3 will be built by General Atomics, the Model Y will be built by Boeing, the Model X will be built by Lockheed Martin. And so we're trying to unify on a kind of genus skateboard that we can all adapt from and use. That then enables affordability, because if we build a thousand skateboards and we go to rate on that, we can easily drive the cost of that down. And that component of a vehicle, whether it's a car or an airplane, is about 70% of the work content. So you drive down the cost on the 70%, and then you let the 30% of the cost vary around the mission needs. Maybe it's electronic attack, maybe it's sensing, maybe it's weapons delivery, whatever you can imagine that mission to be, you can do to a different vendor. But the key is everyone aligning on that genus and having a genus that is adaptable to the range of missions that we know that we need to do today. So what do you think the future is going to hold for airmen that are going to be on flight lines in the future? If Secretary Kendall's vision plays out, what's that flight line going to look like? What are future mission packages going to look like? I, I don't think it's a secret that it, we can't even staff our fighter pilots today for the planes we have, let alone if we create even more of those fighter planes. So I think you're going to see manning within the Department of Defense largely say the same. So you're going to have the same number of men, but they're going to be able to project more combat power. That's going to then involve all the AI and ML that we talked about. And essentially, a man fighter, like an F-18 or an F-15, would be able to extend itself via unmanned wingmen that carry these AI agents that are flying that basically don't increase manpower, but present a larger mass of warfighting hardware in the fight. I think what's going to happen is our airmen and our guardians are have to going to start thinking more like a battle manager than the Tom Cruise Maverick fighter pilot. They're going to be commanding squadrons in the air and not just worried about their own mission systems. So we're going to see constant manning, but we're going to see a renaissance in how we train and how we equip them. I, there will always be the basic flight training. There will always be the T-7 airmanship that they'll work through. But I think a lot of it will be done within a more terrestrial, virtualized environment where we present the agents to these, these fighter pilots and we look and we adapt a human tactic with a machine learned tactic and we harness a power there. So it's going to be less about flying airplanes and it's going to be more about closing kill chains. Now, and I bet it's going to demand a lot of discipline within roles and responsibilities. We remember the early days of Predator where you could have literally a four-star general trying to very tactically control a air, one aircraft over the battle space and from the CAOC or even the Pentagon. And now, you know, that really sub-optimizes who is in the best position to, to do things effectively, efficiently, and all that. And now with this new technology, you could expand it even further. So I think it, 
really driving that discipline is going to be huge. Yeah. And I think there's an interesting comment there and a whole nother line of thinking we could talk about maybe a future time about battle management. So now if you go from 50 fighters in a forward fight that, you know, a major battle center is trying to manage what targets are priority and what's not. Now you're talking about thousands. So how do we take the thousands and strategically make battle management decisions at the speed of relevance? So there's a whole nother movement going on within General Atomics at the battle management, not at the fighter pilot in the forward fight. How do we look at the data pipes? What information are we getting? What information do we need? What's resilient? What's not? If we're only talking to the UAVs once every 10 minutes, and they're only talking to us once every 10 minutes, what does battle management look like? What does our airplane look like? What does our ATO look like? And what is the speed of relevance? We all assume that our adversaries are going to be using things like quantum computing and AI. And if they're closing those kill chains in seconds or minutes, and we're not at the speed of decision-making at the battle management level, you know, that's a failure as well. And so understanding how the battle management software overlaps with the on-aircraft agent software, overlaps with the manning that we have in our fighters is a very complicated systems engineering problem. GA recently acquired a company named CRI and they're big thinkers in this space and they have some very pervasive ideas on the battle management side of that. There's a very exciting product being launched from them called Optics and harnessing that battle management power with the emergent UAVs, with the AI and mixing that together is going to be something really special in the next five years. Now, and you're speaking exactly to why you hear Mitchell come online so much defending the battle management community, especially as we sunset some of the legacy airframes, the new tech isn't quite there and there's a risk to just get rid of the, this talent because there isn't something immediately to attach them to for hardware. And yet this is serious art these people have learned and we cannot sunset that prematurely because we're going to need it on the backside. And I think it's a growth area in many ways. Yeah. So another area that I think is really going to have to change a lot is test and evaluation. I'd argue that we largely have an industrial age model in play. It's a huge challenge for moving through major programs that we hear about all the time, like F-35 and B-21 is going to have to go through it and all that. When you look at the level of complexity and in the speeds we need for fielding things like next-gen UAVs, how do you think that test and evaluation complex needs to adjust to be relevant for information age capabilities? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a hard question to tackle. I think the easy answer that you hear from most people is we're going to go and we're going to virtualize that. We're going to do so much of this unknown battle space as a bunch of different courses of action or a bunch of different laydowns that we just can't test in the physical world. But to the example that I gave earlier of how we test our AI out on the range, the testing is going to pivot to understanding all the things that aren't in our virtual environment. So we're actually not gonna validate and verify and test, we're gonna find the gaps in our virtual simulation. So going out on the range is gonna be a key component in the DTOT communities, but it's more gonna drive virtual testing and the ability to compute faster than real time. I think what that'll do is it'll speed up the pipeline of having trust and in the systems and the capability the systems have, but we're going to have to accept that culturally. Back to, I think, Secretary Kennel's biggest challenge is that's going to involve taking risk in the test domain to put our trust in these virtual environments. And we're going to have to find that right balance of verifying the models in flight tests, finding the gaps in flight tests, and then working through that, that loop. And so much of the testing is not going to be flight sciences. It's not going to be how hard can you pull the stick and roll. 
It's how fast can you close kill chains, which is more about data links and information and data integrity and speed of processing and latency and all these things that we need to get better at in testing as a department of defense. So I, I think there is a renaissance coming. I think you're going to see OT switch to gap analysis and less of verification testing. As the saying goes, no bucks, no buck Rogers. So what's the business case that you guys and other actors in this field need to ultimately take this to the next level? I think one of our frustrations has been, there's been a lot of talk about this, but the service oftentimes for various reasons, oftentimes just for lack of cash, is not scaled production avenues. And so things just remain in the test or theoretical land way too long. And that's not a business case that'll sustain the talent required to manifest this. So how do you look at this? Yeah, from from a revenue perspective, I think all of us in big aerospace recognize that there's two core, three core revenue streams. There's building jets and selling airplanes, which you can make a decent amount of money on, but comes with a decent amount of capital. And you have to right size your buildings and your CNC machines and your spaces and your hangars. And it comes at very interesting financial burden. The second piece is revenue from software development. And generally, I think we've all accepted that that's a continual development model. If you look at the F-35 program for Lockheed Martin, they make a lot of money on keeping the software relevant on the F-35 that largely doesn't have that capital problem. And I think you start to see the balance in a company's books between the physical hardware delivery as well as the software sustainment. So I think part of it is acknowledging that there will be a continual software development pipeline to keep these agents, to keep these OMS systems relevant and at the tip of the spear. And then the third one is the CLS, the contractor logistics support. So that's the recurring support of the airplane. I think there was a belief in Dr. Roper's era that we could greatly minimize CLS by making consumable UAVs, the matches to my previous example. I think the op-tempo problems have showed, no, that there is gonna be some right-sized version of logistics support of quick change engine packages, of servicing on the flight line, of upgrades of mission systems, of maybe repair of coatings and that type of thing. And if you're fortunate enough to find yourself making the material airplanes and you're making money on that, there's a back-end tail that just will exist on the CLS side. And so those are the three revenue pipelines. In terms of getting industry engaged and showing enough of a market capitalization that makes sense, I think Secretary Kendall's varsity move to break up the acquisition to say everyone's going to get a piece of this. It's not winner take all. Helps keep industry engaged and everyone feeling relevant. I know I personally worked MQ-25. It was a big part of GA's investment in unmanned. And to lose to that, it worked completely out. There's no piece of MQ-25 that General Atomics is working. That's hard for us. And we invested capital and then we took a big loss on that. With Kendall's business model and everybody gets a piece, you don't have that big, put everything into it and lose moment. So I think people are going to take more risks to right-size their capital investments to build the aircraft. I think they're getting smarter about being the LSI on the training environments to make money on software. And I think we're all seeing that the CLS will be a nice balance to augment the investments that we make in capital. Now, I appreciate that. So what keeps you up at night when it comes to turning this vision into reality? I think I've hit it a couple of times so far, but it's the policy challenge. I see from where I sit an adversary that's basically going to go into the battle space with quantum computing, with reinforced learned agents, that anything in front of them, they are going to shoot. They are not going to worry about policy. 
They're not going to worry about combat ID. They're going to go out there and they're going to be gunslingers with machine guns. I don't think our Air Force, our Navy is built that way. We're meant to be more surgical. We're meant to spend a lot of time validating kill chains and closing very tight couple kill chains against strategic things. When we bring mass, there's going to be some unconstrained ability to go against that machine gun that's coming at us and how Congress and the Pentagon work on that policy, drive that down to a technology level of risk-taking. I think that is the tough moment we find ourselves in right now. And so I am, I'm actually not worried about technology. I think we have more than enough technology to solve the war. It's how we implement the technology we have within an acceptable policy and risk posture for the United States to fight a war that is ethical and that we think is the right way to, to conduct warfare in this modern era. That's what keeps me up at night. So building off of that, how should we determine in the future whether a mission task is assigned to a manned or unmanned aircraft? How do you think about that? That's a good question. I think we have expansive target decks on what we think we're going to see. And I think it's up to those policymakers to look at those target decks and align rules of engagement posture of unmanned systems to address that target deck. And I think using that matrix, I think maybe to bring this home for the listener, Obama went through and did this, right? When there were all these hellfire engagements during counterinsurgency, there was an expansive rules of engagement. You have to have pattern of life for 24 hours. You have to have secondary oversight of this. We're going to see that type of almost executive branch ROE, rules of engagement methodology come out for unmanned air to air. And I think that will then allow us as warfighters at the tactical implementation to follow that rules of engagement, to adequately target pair non-deterministic unmanned systems in a forward fight with a tritable mass in a way that's beneficial and ultimately wins the war. Yeah. And I would have to imagine that risk to the pilot would factor in certain attributes stronger on unmanned versus unmanned and just matching those to best net the effect. So allies, obviously we don't go anywhere without them. Are they showing interest in this as well? Absolutely. I think we've seen Boeing go down to Australia with the MQ-28 program and integrate with the Royal Air Force down there and essentially recreate, I think, what AFRL was doing with their suite of programs. So that was an indigenous Australian version of the Air Force programs. We've seen the UK uh, on the heels of the UK Protector program dabble in a program called Mosquito. And much like the Australians recreate for their own journey, what kind of AFRL and DARPA had been doing within their programs. I think what that's allowed them to do is come up the curve on the systems engineering and the complexity of these systems. I would say that the U.S. seems to be significantly in front of bringing it all together, the brain, the body, and the mission systems and doing relevant testing. I'm hopeful that the products that General Atomics making is making will be exportable. We call that our Gambit portfolio of aircraft, where we would export UCAB technologies to our allied partners. But I'll tell you right now, we're really focused on the leadoff hit with the domestic United States to prove and work through some of these policy issues. And I think the heels on that work in the three to five year time horizon will open up doors for export of those systems. That will also allow our UK and Australian partners to come up that learning curve a little bit on how they want to implement that. I'm really excited on what I see with the Australians and what they've stood up down there, uh, where they've ended up with their MQ-28 program has been exciting to see their readiness to accept what we're making in and around the domestic program. So they will definitely be a part of it, 
But I don't think you're going to see the foreign military sale contingent of that for at least three to five years. Yeah. And again, it harkens back to something else you talked about, policy. It's going to be so important to unite these there when we, when we engage together. We're reading about what you guys are doing in future years. How should we grade your homework? What are the big picture elements you think we should be tracking to assess how this is going? Yeah, I think it's proof in the pudding. You know, being an R&D guy, I'm accused of being Mr. PowerPoint, Mr. Lightning Bolt all the time. It's all smoke and mirrors and not real. I think all the industry partners need to show up and have to be flying airplanes of relevant capability. I went over a story of, of just one example of how we do that. The real world is different than the virtual. And unless companies are on-ramp testing, and that can be with surrogates, it doesn't have to be with the exact right aircraft. I think Secretary Kendall enjoys a good fly-off. I think you'll see like the YF-23 and the X-35. I think you will see more people make it farther in acquisition programs, and you will see more exciting, different designs coming together and being tested under, under one con-op. So our homework is to go to that battle dome and win. And I think that the average American will get some visibility in, into that testing and that fly-off as it goes. But really, it's having flying hardware on ramps uh, that instantiates whatever value proposition that company is pushing. Obviously, through the talk today, I'm a big believer in really testing the AI. So looking for flight tests of AI, looking for flight tests in next generation communication systems, as well as bringing relevant aircraft to the ramp uh, at an affordable price point. So someone building an airplane that, that meets these attributable mass targets. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough. We're at the end of our time block, but what you've accomplished is incredible and what you're pioneering is even more impressive. So again, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I got the best job in aerospace and it's fun to be able to talk about it and share some of our accomplishments. So very much appreciate Mitchell and all that you guys do. Hey, you take care, man. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should explore further. And as always, you can join the conversation by following Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.